Welcome to the MFA Made for Agriculture podcast. Here are your hosts, Adam Jones and Cameron Horine. All right, folks, welcome to another episode of the Made for Agriculture podcast. My name's Adam Jones, and we are absent Cameron Horine today. He's supposedly out uh, doing some work. I'm, I'm not sure. I think he might have just been scared of the crew that we're actually recording with today and having it in the record books that he was in the same room as, as all these folks uh, might be more what he's scared at, about today. But uh, but we'll see. We'll, we'll ask him next time he's he's on the show. Um, anyway, we're, we're kind of getting towards uh, early summer. Um, and I know, you know, we like to, to think about it and cover timely po- topics on the podcast as best we can and, and kind of dive in the weeds a little bit. So it's, um, I feel like in the next two weeks, um, almost every acre of hay in the state of Missouri will get cut down and bailed up. And so I feel like it's a good time to, uh, to cover hay production, go into some kind of t- tips and tricks and, and kind of pick the brains of some of these guys in the room. And um, so we're going to try to do that this morning. So let's go around the table here one at a time and you guys uh, kind of give me a, a short introduction and um, name and what you do for MFA and, and all those kind of things. So, Sammy, let's start with you. You bet. Uh, Sam Owen, and I'm the livestock specialist here in, in Districts 1 and 2 in North Missouri and, and uh, just been with them a day or two. And just just a day or two? Just a day or two, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Still learning. Okay. <laughs> this is our new intern over here, Sam <laughs> Owen. <laughs> uh, Brandon Sowers, uh, livestock cam uh, for half a district two and a partial of district one. Uh, mostly just work uh, one-on-one with uh, operations, find out goals and uh, find ways to achieve them. I'm Mitch Hillsbeck. I'm a precision specialist for uh, basically the same half of district two that Brandon is. We cover the Grand River Group and the Iowa Group. And basically my role with MFA is to help growers add value through their fertility program, whether it be on the row crop side or hay and pasture production. Okay. Awesome. And if you'll notice, and, and hopefully everybody picked up on this kind of right away, but, um, but we're talking about something livestock and hay related. And um, it, unless I, know, I can pull up my Google maps to double check, but we are not in Southern Missouri. So for one, <laughs> for, for one time we are, we are covering a livestock related topic. And we are in North Central Missouri, uh, so we ca- we came up here, and so um, you know. So that being said, you guys are going to have to really show some expertise here, otherwise we're gonna we're gonna catch a lot of flack for okay. for not going down there uh, to cover our livestock topics. But um, I think the first thing to to kind of t- talk about is is kind of where we're at seasonally here a little bit, and then let's kind of go into what everybody. You know, I don't know the best order of way to, to kind of cover things, but I think we ought to kind of cover, you know, some in some respects here, you know, tonnage, quality, storage, and then kind of those other um, uh, newer ways to put up forage, right? So baleage and, and wet wrapping and, and those kind of things. I don't know that there's a right or a wrong way to, to cover all those topics, but um, just to kind of dive right off into to tonnage first, one of you guys kind of jump on there and, and kind of talk to me about really the kind of the things that affect tonnage and, and then we can go into species and all those kind of things too. But Mitch, I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to, if you, yeah. if you don't jump right in, I'm going to call on you. I think, I think the number one thing on tonnage is going to be knowing your fertility program. You know, where are you at? I mean, it's just like with corn and soybeans, you know, you got a 200, 250 bushel 
a corn goal or a 70 bushel bean goal, what's your yield goal for your hay? Thinking about that and, and fertilizing effectively to get that goal and ties a hand in hand with making sure your pH is right as well. That's the, that's going to be the first place to start. You know, your number one limiting factor of production is going to be soil fertility, whether you've got the right or wrong uh, species, whether you've got good weather or bad weather, if your fertility is not there, you're going to have a lack of production. Right. So you feel like soil pH is probably the most limiting in that, most of the hay fields that you yeah, see. Yeah. And I mean, That's, we've done a lot of, started to do a lot of grid sampling on hay and pasture fields here in the last couple of years and, and seeing a lot of really low pHs and that's going to have a, a major factor on one, how efficient your fertilizer is going to be. But, and obviously if your fertilizer efficiency is low, then your plant growth is going to be lower too. And so, especially, especially on alfalfa or other legumes, you really got to have that pH in check to be able to maximize your production. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, and yeah, as cheap as ground is, you can just keep buying right, more exactly. hay fields, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Uh, <laughs> we were no. talking about that earlier where, I think the idea of <clears throat> having that back 80 just be hay ground and we cut it once a year and, and forget about it. Those days that they're not over, they're sure dwindling. I think producers really need to understand that they are farmers, whether that's a row crop or, or a grass farmer. The end result is you're trying to make the most yield as you can, the most cost efficiently. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that comes into... Yeah. Well, what, I mean, both, honestly, because... Um, you know, I think a lot of farms, at least in the last couple of years here, and I think looking at, you know, uh, row crop commodity prices are going to be continued to, you know, kind of be parsed up and it's not just going to be an 80 of hay anymore. We're going to take the best 30 acres out and we're going to grow $17 soybeans there. And then we're left with the rest of it. What's left. And, and you know, what, with what input prices are between diesel and fertilizer and land costs. Like what Mitch was saying with NutriTrack, I don't know how you can afford to just flat rate stuff, flat rate fertilizer. You really have to understand, and this talks more into into a further on growing forages and sampling them as well, but um, just knowing exactly where that's at so you can pinpoint what it needs and feed it appropriately. You sure. really have to be cost effective. Oh, I've, I've told multiple people that this spring that the fertilizer is way too expensive to just put it out there not knowing yeah. whether you need it or not, yeah. you know. Um, so I, th- I think that kind of plays hand in hand with, with what we're talking about, uh, you know, and especially on the P and K that are soul bound nutrients. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about pH. Um, what are y'all's thoughts on, on nitrogen, uh, on, I think generally we're talking about cool season grass hay yeah. here. So, yeah. you know, brome fescue, something based, depending on what part of the state you're in typically. You guys have any thoughts on uh, kind of timings and or product or rates or all those kind of things? I personally really like split applying nitrogen, you know, going in and, and trying to get that first application done early spring, um, allow that. And I, I like our Super U product for that. I think it's a really good product for, for the hay ground, um, 40 to 50 pounds prior to first cutting. You get that first cutting off kind of get into that later summer time frame, put another 40, 50 pounds on. I think, I think it's hard to lose with that, with that program there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and that, that works real good. Uh, the ones that have cut or, and or pastured some of it off early already, uh, you know, Mitch 
we'd like to see him go back in with that another 40, 50 pounds right now, especially, yeah. you know, when you get north I-70, it just seems like uh, we run a few more cattle right. per acre than, than a lot of folks do. Yep. We don't have the extra acres as we were talking about earlier. Sure. And so uh, if we're not managing that fertility, whether it don't be on the P and K, but definitely on the, the nitrogen side when it comes to uh, the cool season grass, you know, right now uh, we had a lot of folks that decided not to put on as much this spring. Right. But since they've taken a little bit off, you know, in between the rain showers, they've, uh, some of them have decided they need to get a little bit more out there right now and, and try to improve the production of, of where they're at. Right, right. Well, and, and as the price of the product goes up, or at least this is how I look at things, you know, and, and I don't know, sometimes that's not the, not the way the rest of society should look at things. But I know when I'm looking at it, you know, like the trip across the field is the is about the cheapest part of the whole operation when yeah. you're talking about nitrogen rates, especially this year. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, adding an extra trip across, whether it's you personally doing it or, or paying a, a custom service to do it, um, it that that is the cheapest part of the entire operation. And so if you can become slightly more efficient just by adding another pass, it, it yeah. doesn't really add that much Absolutely. to the to the, to the program as a whole. Um, no, I, I think you guys are right in there and I would agree with the, you know, split applications and yeah, especially if you're going to, you know, if you're going to graze after haying later on in the year or something like that, you want to kind of, you know, um, you know, leave some ammo in the barrel there a little bit for, for being able to bring that on yeah, kind of yeah. timely. And that whole topic on. of grazing after haying, it's really, you're still taking a, a crop off of that. You're just taking it a little differently. So you should just treat it very similar to that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you still yeah. take a tonnage off. You're just going to take it with a cow instead of a baler. Right. Right. That's exactly right. And so, yeah, either way, you know, kind of giving another shot in the arm before we kind of get off of fertility and, and, you know, start arguing about piece of equipment or how to put it up or whatever. Anything else you want to add, Mitch? Like, is, are there typically, I mean, are you looking at micros or are you seeing response to sulfur? I know those are things that kind of we've looked at in the past. Um, but kind of what are y'all's thoughts on yeah, some of that I mean, stuff too? Yeah, I mean, obviously your biggest factor is going to be nitrogen, and P and K plays a, a major role as well. But yeah, I think there's a big benefit to sulfur on grasses, and even even a little bit of that boron, especially on alfalfa. I think you're going to see a little bit of boost in in plant health by doing that as well. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. No, I I'd agree with that too, and especially like you said, when you get kind of get into the more of the specialty um, species and whatnot, um, it's it's certainly um, something that we can throw in there. All right, let's talk about a little bit about kind of grass species and and what you guys look for. Uh, I know this this is going to vary widely by geography, and yeah. so I think we've uh, we've joked about that a little bit, but we know where these guys are from. But um, but hopefully you can speak to the some of the surrounding landscape too. So so what are you all looking for as as something that you know? I, again, I think maybe the best way to frame this up would be. If I gave you a bare patch of ground and I told you to plant a hay field, um, what species would you go out there and plant to uh, to hay every year? Well, I really think. Sorry for interrupting. I was going to say, but seven top seventeen dollars soybeans look solid. All right, this, <laughs> let's say it's on an eight percent slope, okay? <laughs> and it needs to be in grass. <laughs> well. I think it kind of comes down to the goals of the operation. I don't think there's a one size fits all by any means. Um, Talked to Brandon about this a lot, but I think the first thing is look at is, you know, what are your animals used to eating and not trying to do something off the wall crazy, something like that. Um, 
I think an alfalfa orchard grass mixture is a really nice mixture. I like other, you know, we talk brome and clover, having a little bit of diversity. Um, and then obviously a big player in North Missouri is, is fescue. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think having the diversity, the only thing with that is just making sure when you're putting it up that when you've got different species, they dry down differently. So that's something to definitely keep, keep in, in mind when you're putting hay up. I think that's probably the biggest thing you nailed it is each operation is going to be different. They have different goals, so they have different needs and operations uh, that are a couple miles apart are going to be doing things wildly different. So it's not necessarily a one size fits all. It's, it's what's the oper operation trying to do and then how can we help partner with them to achieve that. Uh, but I follow on the same thought process as Mitch is I like a nice blend of grass and legumes. Uh, I'm a fan of diversity. Uh, just anytime you're going to have diversity, you're going to lower your risk. I'm a fan of that uh, uh, orchard grass, alfalfa, brown clover. The only thing is alfalfa doesn't really like wet feet. But um, just like you said, too, now you got some diversity. You've got another component to deal with as far as drying down, too. But um, together with having grasses and legumes, I think you're going to outproduce just having a monoculture by itself. And I'll I'll just uh, throw throw something else out there just just to be just a hair different. It just depends, like these guys have said, uh, on the operation. But if if I'm having to deal with it based on our jobs or whatever, uh, and based on that producer's uh, other interests, uh, I'll go probably lean toward more of a monoculture, just because it's going to make it simpler for him if if we're doing it for hay or if we're doing it for grazing. Uh, I'd, I'd rather have brome or, or straight fescue out there on that 8% slope. But, uh, if I'm going after total production, then I'll put it in alfalfa. But again, you know, over the years, just seeing the difference between, uh, a blended hay field versus a, uh, a straight alfalfa or a straight clover, uh, I'll always out yield with the, the straight products, you know, day in, day out. Uh, and then we'll take take broom and, and put uh, orchard grass and, and anything else uh, to shame if they're, if they're willing to, to take the fertility, you know, wrecks to go along with it. Uh, uh, it's just amazing how, how much broom will, will produce if it's, if it's fed right. Right. So uh, there, it just depends and, and, and not, not really arguing with those guys, but just taking each operation uh, and looking at it. Uh, the monoculture in, in a lot of cases will help them because it'll focus them in on doing something right every time. And it kind of goes in, along with, you know, you're focusing on one, one particular species drying down and it's going to dry down all the same rather than trying to mix in with the clover. So I, I'd, I'd agree with that in, in that aspect of it too. Yep. Um, I will say one knock I'll have on like an alfalfa or, or a brome is a, uh, Last year, I ended up being more of an army worm farmer than a grass farmer because, uh, you know, I got alfalfa hit twice and the brome got hit once. So that's something else to keep in mind, too. That's not yep. something to brag not about. Something, yeah. a good it's army not. Army worm. <laughs> it was a pretty good army worm. Yeah. yeah. I, will, I will say that. Well, I think in all three of you guys said it before, you know, kind of just to preface your your species choices there. But um, but yeah, depending on the producer, right, or depending on the grower. And, and another thing I think that... Um, we ought to think about is, is that, you know, hay is, is, um, you know, kind of the front of the shed for some guys. 
And then for other guys, the hay is kind of at the back of the shed, right? When they when they look at their uh, kind of bank of projects to get done around the farm, and so I think your uh, you know your thought process process changes there a little bit. You know, you mentioned orchard grass. Well, that's going to be done and ready to cut early, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, if if a guy's got a bunch of row crops on the operation, he's probably not going to get. You're you're absolutely correct. I think it produces some of the best hay out there but he's never going to get it put up right because he's still planting corn yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so uh, thinking about, you know, what day, do you, what day of the, what calendar day do you normally get your hay put up and then, and then kind of go down the, you know, the, the species yeah. list there too. Um, and, and maybe, you know, maybe it's a field that we don't get to until midsummer or something. I mean, maybe we should be looking at, you know, a switchgrass or gamma grass or some warm season that that's still going to be actually green when we yeah, get yeah. to cutting that, you know, and I, I definitely think that that's something that Northern Missouri hasn't given enough consideration to, but I think it's something that could be a very, very important part of operations down the road. Yep. No, I agree. I, I think we, you know, we're, again, we, we kind of get on the roller coaster of the, the timeline. This is, this is when we, you know, it's like, okay, well, it just seems like with weather in the last, you know, few years, it's like, it is, there's a lot of hay put up in July and August. And, yeah. Um, and no matter what, and all those, you know, we're cool season grass species and, and our quality is going to suffer in, yeah. in July, you know, by the time it's, it's July and August, but, um, anything else on kind of the, you know, the tonnage part of thing? What, I mean, what did we kind of miss there on, um, things affecting overall tonnage? We talked a little bit, like I said, about species and, and fertility. Um, anything else you guys wanted to cover there? All right. So I think. Um, let's dive off into this could be a rabbit hole, but, uh, kind of the discussion of quality and obviously things that we already discussed, um, play into this a little bit. Um, but as far as getting a, a top quality, hay put up, Brandon, why don't you jump in there and, and give us kind of uh recipe to, to put up the best, something that's going to test quality? the, yeah, I the think best time, timing's going to be your biggest issue. Um, I think that would, you guys. Uh, argue if you want. I think timing is going to be a bigger play than species. I think you're uh, to put up the best quality. Uh, my personal opinion is uh, cutting it early and often. Uh, you'd like that the boot to bud stage. Mm -hmm. uh, when you think about that, you want to keep that that plant in a continual vegetative state, so it's it's making leaves instead of trying to go into a reproductive state, making seeds. That's where your quality is going to diminish. So if you can catch it in the, and there's an asterisk there, life happens. Sure. Uh, you get three <laughs> weeks of rain and it's going to change plans. So, um, I mean, that's part of the uh, job of our job and being a farmer is you got to be flexible. Ideally, uh, I'd love to catch that in the boot to bud stage early and often. Keep it in that vegetative state so that you can come back and take a second or even a third cutting. Uh, your timing as far as putting it up is going to uh, play a key role in that quality as well. As far as getting that properly dried down. And, and that's like you said, a bit of a rabbit trail. Like how do you do that? Mitch and I were talking earlier. Do you use dismower versus a more conditioner? Do you use a rake versus a tether? Do you, how do you put it up? Do you... You put it up in little squares. Oh my goodness, that's my childhood right there. Just yeah. millions of bales in a hay mile. Horrible flashbacks. Oh, I always tell people I'm so thankful for football two days to come because then you got to get off on the hay rack. That yeah. was easy. <laughs> uh, but 
are we putting it in a hay shed and storing it under roof? Are we putting it with uh, plastic netting? Is it twine? So all of that will uh, play into account for what kind of quality we're putting up. And we really want to focus in, you know, when when we're on anybody's farm, we really want to focus in on quality and, and not the quantity. The quantity will come uh, based on the fertility levels that we're going to put after it. But on the quality side, you know, we have to we have to manage each field based on when it's going to uh, go from the vegetative to the reproductive state. Yeah, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I was talking to Mitch about this earlier. Um, if you have less uh, quantity but a higher quality, um, these cows are getting more of a relative feed value, more of a TDN. Um, you have a better you're being more cost efficient with your feed versus just continually shoving bales in. It's the difference of, you know, am I having a ham sandwich for lunch or am I having Easter ham and mashed potatoes and bread and all the work? So, yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I'm at the end of the day, that's, that's all what we're looking for. Right. I mean, when we're putting this stuff up, we're trying to not have to supplement, right. Supplement feed at all right. that much. Um, and, and so that's what we want. So and a real easy way to find quality is, uh, test it. Uh, now it's one of the things that we do often is get a hay test. We go in there with a probe and a cordless drill, take a couple samples out of a out of a bale, do it for several different lots. We send that off in a in a Ziploc bag with you know, date, lot number, what kind of hay it is. Uh, most of the time, we send that off to Midwest Labs. And uh, the things I'm looking for, uh, you're looking at protein level, moisture, TDN. Uh, relative feed value. In some cases, when you're dealing with, I mean, we, we even sample silage, or you might talk about baleage later on, look at nitrates too. But that ought to give you a, um, a good idea of what you're dealing with, because in the end of the day, you're either selling that hay, so you want to price that appropriately, or you're going to feed it. And you know, how do you know um, how to supplement cows if you don't know where your hay is at? And most of the time, if if you see those signs, whereas they don't rebreed, we got a bad body condition score, our cost of gains are, are up and our rate of gains down, it's too late. So what time of year do you typically recommend pulling that hay test? Is it kind of like right after it comes out the backside of the baler or do you want to store it for a month or two and then pull hay test? Or? I like to let it sit a little bit. Okay. Um, just let it cure, sweat, whatever you want to call that. Just let it sit down and... Um, I'll have to give it at least a month, but definitely before we start feeding, I want to get an idea of what that looks like. Um, you get into that silage or baleage and you got to let it cure for uh, like at least 30 days. Just let it, let it sit. I'll agree with that on the silage. Now on the, on the hay, if they're doing it right, and like we've talked about prior to starting here this morning, but if they're doing it right and getting it right, put up at the right moisture, Taking it right after it comes, if if I'm there and it's just coming out of the baler and, and he knows that it's going up at 13% moisture, you know, uh, that's an ideal time. We're not going to change the nutrient value of that, you know, unless he's got some hot spots that, you know, end up molding or sweating or something like that. But, you know, if overall, if, if, if we're there and it's just come out of the baler, there's nothing wrong with going ahead and taking that sample because it's not going to change if the moisture's right. If the moisture's not right, you bet, then we, we need to let it set to see what's happened. I'll even, I think that sampling hay 
is an underutilized tool uh, by producers. Sampling hay, soil sampling, anything sampling wise. We even sample manure as far as that get back into NutriTrack. Right. Uh, it's an underutilized tool, and I was just thinking there too that some people carry over hay. Well, I was going to ask that too: is is if you carry over hay, does that nutrient value going to change? I am a, I go am ahead a, and resample. I it? am a proponent of resampling that because, especially if they are sitting outside, they're getting rained on, and they're getting snowed on. You're going to have they're going to start to decompose. If we're going to build a nutrition plan for these cows, I want to know exactly what that hay is, and it's such a a little thing that can help out so much. Yeah, I am a big proponent of resampling that if you're going to have carryover hay, especially if it, if it like uh, he was talking about if it if it's stacked outside, no extra cover. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> they only did one wrap, or maybe 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 barely two wraps uh, with right. the uh, uh, with the net wrap. Uh, then we can tell there's starting to be quite a bit of loss coming in, and, and that's going to affect overall quality, depending on how they're going to feed it. So, uh, and quality on on livestock uh, on any ruminant animal, it if we're if we're only going to have to feed X number of pounds, the higher the quality, uh, I can get by with the the least amount of pounds. So I can offset any quantity difference. If I improve the quality, improve the quality. You yeah. Yeah. So when we look at, um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the, the tools of the trade, right. Um, or the, you know, type of mower and, and are we going to, you know, rake it or run a tether over it or, and all that kind of stuff. Um, what are y'all's thoughts on, um, kind of the setup there that in, in a grass or, or mixed, if that's, or mixed hay species, um, maybe those two things are different. Um, but kind of run me through what your thought process is on um, kind of the ideal setup there. It really depends on what you're mowing, honestly. Uh, I think the, it depends on what you're mowing. I think it depends on the operation too. You know, not every single thing is going to fit yeah. every operation. Yeah, 100%. Every operation is different. Personally, for me, I'm a fan. If I'm mowing just grasses, a disc mower works perfect. Uh, if I'm mowing legumes, I like a more conditioner because I think you want that conditioner there to crack stems to help dry down time. I agree with that. And you start getting into some stockier stuff, like some summer annuals that you're doing too. I think that more conditioner really takes yep. takes it there. But in my opinion, I think adding a tether to your operation does a little bit more for your your dry down and your quality than a conditioner might in in most situations if you're using it right too. You know, being able to come in there and before the leaves start to dry down and get that hay fluffed up where you can get more uniform drying, get get all that hay off the ground a little bit more to be able to get some more sunlight or get some more wind, I think is a critical factor in trying to get hay to dry down. A great example would be this year where we've been so wet. Yeah. Anytime you can lower the drying time, it's just going to help you out. I mean, just between the weather and a lot of guys up here are diversified as far as they got livestock that they're trying to work. They got beans that they're still trying to put in. I'd make my camera right there if he was here. But, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, we don't, just, we don't have to wait for him to be here. <laughs> <laughs> but anything that's going to help minimize that time, but not lessen the quality is. The biggest, the biggest key is going to be getting to your optimal moisture the quickest possible without, you know, without sacrificing tearing leaves off because that's where that's where your quality is going to come from your leaves so you want to make sure your timing is right but to be able to get 
from mowing to baling quickest at that optimal moisture content is going to be ideal. And whether that's with a tether or a conditioner, both, and then just timing of when you do those with your tethering and your raking. So you're, so you're thinking that tether uh, addition may decrease the amount of days that that hay is laying out Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Total. Absolutely. And yeah. I mean, the, the biggest thing right now is probably, it's another pass in the field. Diesel prices obviously aren't ideal for it, but I think it is a significant factor in producing high quality hay. Yeah. If you, if you use the tether as a planned approach uh, going through the, the haying operation, and not as a rescue, uh, just to rescue it when it does yeah. get rained on yeah. here yet this spring. Uh, if if the tether is used and, and bought accordingly, uh, it really makes a big difference in that quality. Just because it might be that half day that they, they did get to yeah. get it bailed up before uh, the next rain came in. So uh, it, it's a it, if it's used correctly, it's a it's a great tool. If it's not used correctly, it costs them money. Yeah. And I will say there's an argument against it. If you're if you're mainly putting up strictly grasses, maybe it doesn't add as much value. If you're putting up a lagoon or clover, alfalfa, I think that's where it's really going to shine. As long as you're not knocking leaves off. I say but, then, then I guess you would have to be pretty careful on yes. um, on how dry it is before yep. you take exactly. out across it. Exactly. I got you. So so you're looking at. Um, Kind of right in front of the raking operation at that point or significantly in front of the raking operation i would say it's it's significantly in most cases especially like i said with the lagoons um you know if you mow day one i'd like to get in there the next day kind of in that time frame where the dew's starting to come off that's when i tether it you don't you want to make sure that stays at a you know, that 40 to 50% moisture range probably is going to be your target just so your leaves can stay intact and maybe run it at a, a little bit lower RPM and not having it spin quite as fast can help too. Um, but yeah, and then coming back in and raking, you know, you don't want to get it too dry to rake because then you, again, you're running into knocking leaves off. But, right. but yeah, I would, uh, tethering wise, it's get that top layer after you mow, get it a little bit dry and then come in and fluff it up and get everything some air. Okay. I know you run one on your operation. Yeah. Have you seen success? We've all run into this. We've cut hay. We've run the tether over it. We catch a half an inch of rain. Catch an inch of rain. Yeah. Uh, good tool as far as using that again. Yeah, it is. I mean, definitely like Sammy said though, you, you want to use that as an, in a planned operation obviously you and don't plan rescue, you right. don't plan on rain but it absolutely However, it absolutely is a tool if you run into that situation because like you said life happens you're going to get hay rained on here and there it we, is a tool for that as well absolutely. i grew up we didn't have a tether we just had a rake and we've, we've had hay rained on and then you rake it and rake it and then you're bailing up rim straw to dump yeah. it in a creek right yeah i was just curious as far as your yeah. experience anytime you can get that hay fluffed up and get it off the ground yeah is a very, very positive thing. Well, I like the idea of it's still keeping a wide swath. Yeah, yeah. So now you have a lot of surface area for sunlight to come down yeah. and air circulation. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, but you know, without a tether, you go and you rake it and then it gets bailed on and then you take the rake and you just flip the windrow. Well, that helps that one side get a little bit drier, right. but what's underneath right. is not getting that air that it needs to dry out. And so, yeah, if you've got a rake, even if you don't have a rake, but if you do have a rake taking the tether, Obviously, that's another couple passes through the field, but but getting cheap, that, so we're good, right? Exactly. 
getting that hay dried down uniformly is absolutely critical to quality, whether it's been rained on or not. I mean, when we're looking at autonomy, surely somebody will come up with something that can run around out there in the field and, and just do it. And, by yeah, automatically. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hey, like, that, I feel like that's kind of made, that might be the first thing that comes along. <laughs> <laughs> it seems easy. It does. Until you look out and the automated hay tether sitting in the pond. <laughs> Or the fence right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, possibly. One thing we didn't touch on yet uh, would be cutting height. You guys, uh, I know I have some thoughts, but I figured you guys uh, have some thoughts too on on a kind of a cutting height to shoot for. I'll I'll throw that out there. Uh, I haven't got to hear these guys' thoughts on there, but I'll set it as high as the machine that I'm using. Uh, if it'll allow me to set six inches high, I'll cut that high. Most of them won't, you know, I'll probably yeah. be in that four, four plus area, but the, the higher, uh, I leave that, the, the quicker the, the crop responds or the hay responds. And if it does rain, then I've got a little bit more yeah. chance of saving that, uh, crop before it gets bailed. But the, the higher, the higher I can get it, the better off I am. I view it. I view it. So I agree with you. I view it similar, uh, like to grazing. So. Yeah, think of these plants as uh, their leaves are solar panels. So how do we grow a plant? We take in sunlight, we turn it into energy, we grow a plant. The shorter we cut that or the shorter we graze it, the harder this plant's going to recover and make a second crop. So I like in about that same range. I did have one thing pop up here this last week. Um, this is gonna be like into that summer annual um, uh, rabbit hole is, um, and it can affect some of these guys now too. We're wet. We've got nitrogen on the ground for corn. Now we're we're scrambling. We can't. We probably can't get corn in. What do we do with that? Put a some kind of annual in to chop uh, or bale. That is going to be a lot of nitrogen if we're planting for corn going into the summer annual. And this is what made me think of that was uh, if we uptake a lot of nitrogen, we don't want to be running into the nitrates with feeding that to cattle. We don't want to kill anybody. So that is. Um, uh, point there where we're going to try and set that as high as possible and that's oh after talking with Landry and and uh, uh, Dr. White is 10 inches if we can so that's yeah. something to be aware of in that end too just from the uh, yeah just from the regrowth aspect too well I mean there's just there's not a lot of number one there's not a lot of quality in the hay in that bottom three four five six whatever you know yeah. even uh, there's just, I mean, it's stem is what you're, you're feeding roughage there at that, at that point. So, um, and yeah, it's certainly going to allow that hay to, to recoup, recoup so much faster. And our, our modern equipment is, has gotten better about being able to cut that high. I mean, I remember, my goodness, I think it was a 461 New Holland hay bind was what I pulled around when I was a little kid, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that thing, like it basically would not cut hay that like you weren't scalping the you know, Mother Earth while you were driving around the field. So uh, we've, we've come a long way in, in some of our equipment and our ability to do that effectively, you know, as well. Just the skid plate system underneath and our ability to, to maintain that, that cutting height is, is a lot better. So balers, I, I could go out right now and spend $4,000 on a baler or I could go out and spend $74,000 on a baler. Tell me kind of just generally... Not which of those directions to go. That's not what I'm looking for. <laughs> but just kind of generally tell me um, the parts of that process that do matter, I guess, is kind of what I'm looking for from you guys. Stay in your budget. Stay in your budget. Um, 
you know, get a get a baler that makes a good bale, a good tight bale. I mean, and that could be a brand new baler. That could be a twenty year old baler. Per, my personal preference is I like net wrap, so I would that would be an option for me that I would definitely strongly consider. But as far as spending seventy thousand dollars on a baler, if it fits the operation, do do it. If you want to spend ten thousand dollars on a baler and that fits your operation, do it. That's I have. Kind of my I like the idea as far as net wrapping as well. I also like I've. I've never had one, but I've bought bales where they've had a, a set of chopper knives in them. So they chop that hay as they bale, and I am a fan of that. It's one more addition to a baler, one more thing that could potentially go wrong. However, uh, I have dealt with enough plugs and slugs going through a baler that that would be awful handy. And I've been on the end of feeding those bales. They're a lot more efficient to feed that chopped hay you think about these cows that you put it into a uh, round feeder and they grab a bite and they pull out and do they eat all that? Do they drop some? Whereas those chopped bales, they just tend to sit there and snack. Hmm. Yeah. I was going to ask you if that affect the, affected the utilization yeah. of it. Yeah. I've, I've had firsthand uh, experience with that and I'm a fan of it. And the main thing on, on your, on your operation, if you are uh, having to buy a new baler or, Buy a different baler. Just make it make sure it improves what you've been doing. Yeah, that's the that's the whole long and short of the whole situation. If it if if it's not going to help you improve the uh, the amount of time it takes you to get through a field, uh, then you know you need to be looking at that. You need to be be able to manage your time more as effectively as possible. And I think may, just maintaining proper baler maintenance is going to be a big thing too. Whether you've got a new baler or 20 year old baler make sure everything's greased make sure you're checking bearings you know make sure everything's working properly grease your chain or oil your chains you know that kind of stuff check bearings in january versus checking them with a fire extinguisher <laughs> exactly <July>. exactly <laughs> exactly yeah that's that's well said is there any um um any value to looking at your storage system and 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 matching that with the baler maybe if you're storing inside um, something that makes a 2000 pound bale is not necessarily as, I mean, that wraps it up super tight may not be as critical as if you're setting it outside the whole time. Yeah, I think that'd be a fair assessment. I mean, obviously if you've got a hay barn to, that's got full coverage, maybe having that wraps not as critical there. Maybe having a tighter bale is not quite as critical there. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. What you guys yeah. thoughts? No, I think you're right on. If you're going to be storing outside, you're going to want to have some kind of uh, plastic wrap or fully uh, fully wrapped tight where you can't even get air inside, and you're going to want a heavy tight bale. If you yeah, if you've got a shed to put that in, you can kind of you're a little spoiled there. You can get away with more. Yeah, even if even if you do have a shed, if you've been able to handle 1,500 pound bales or 1,800 pound bales. Then, then stay with that. You know, stay as tight wound as you can, just because you'll have less bales to move, and, right. and it, it's more effective on your time use. Depends right. on what you're using to move them too. Yeah. Uh, as far as bale size and such, you know, if you're if you get into that baleage where you are wrapping them tight, just like silage, you're going to be needing a uh, grapple on a loader versus a, a set of forks or a stabber. Yeah. Uh, if you're putting it up to sell and and you're just loading a semi with a with a bobcat. You might look at something a little smaller and easier to move around. And it depends on where you might sell them too. Sell them to cattle guys. Maybe you want a heavy type bale if you're going more on the horse end, something that they can actually 
that they can manage if it's a smaller operation. Right, right. Those are good thoughts. So let's, let's, any, any other thoughts, I guess, let's talk a little bit about storage for a second. Cause you know, you've mentioned pulling a hay test, you know, possibly as soon as right out, right as it comes out of the baler, but you know, we've got to maintain that right until, um, until we put it into an animal, or at least that's the thought process. So <clears throat> obviously inside's best other thoughts, what kind of what's second best and you kind of started down this path there, Brandon. Too, yeah, but. In a barn shed, it's best. And boy, the 10 to 18-year-old me is just cussing that because I put millions of little bales up in a couple of different hay mounds on our farm and hated it. But in a shed or barn, it's absolute best because you're out of the elements. Next best, if you can't do that, now we're talking uh, plastic wrapping or putting them in uh, those tubes, just like no different than silage. Anywhere where you can keep the elements off, uh, control that more. Uh, if we can't do that, now we're talking like a, a net wrap so we can at least uh, set them to where the water is going to run off of that net and not absorb, um, keeping them a little bit away from each other so we're not, we're not catching and pulling that water and giving mold or anything like that a chance to grow. And I think down the list, uh, twine. Because uh, you're going to have some absorption, you're going to have some spoilage, and I, I put an asterisk there that each each operation is different. You know, if that is all you've got and it works well, then it works. But I'm just thinking like looking down the chain as far as maintaining the highest quality. And I think you're going to if you're storing outside, you're going to want to have uh, uh, somewhat of a flat surface free of debris, but still have some drainage so we're not pulling water. Yeah, you just want to make sure that your that your water is draining away. Um, where it's stored and you don't have water draining into it. I mean, that's going to be the biggest thing. If you're, I've seen that too. Yeah, like you know, you don't, you, you, you don't want it at the bottom of a hill where yeah. it's draining down to it. And, right. And you or a lot of times, able, like right up against the fence, there's like a, a little hump, you know, kind of yeah. where that fence has been there for 200 years. And yeah. so there's like most more soil there at the fence. And so then all the water comes down comes and sits there. sits right at the bottom. And, and it makes a great bail if you want to use them to go plug a washout. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then, and then just make making sure they're far enough apart, row wise, that you're not collecting rainwater bouncing off one bale onto the other, or snow drifts, you know, that kind of. Well, that like kind of we thing. mentioned earlier too, when you're storing them, keep lots separate. You know, what are we going to feed different quality hay to different livestock? Um, you know, we might not be feeding the same hay from a fat calf to a third parity cow. Um, and then having access to all that, you know, if I need that third cutting alfalfa and I buried it behind a bunch of brome and now I've got, let's see, I'm from North Central Iowa, so we're used to like four or five foot snow drifts. Right. I can't get into that. That kind of upsets your nutrition plan. So having access to each different lot and um, having them separated is, it's little things, but it's the little things like that that can help improve operations that add up in the end. And like you said earlier, is, is just be organized about it. Have an idea of where everything is and an inventory count on it. And I know it's maybe not the easiest thing to do to, to actually have an inventory, but it might, might be something to definitely consider yeah. is, is knowing, you know, you've got a plan with your fertility or your, uh, your, pro, your nutrition program. So that's just part of it. You know, you got to be able to know when you get out of that bail, what you're going next and, and a lot of these things don't cost anything and freeze a good price. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you bet. And then getting the getting the hay 
in areas where you know you're going to use it uh, that winter. Yeah. Uh, that makes a big difference. And, you know, not to bring the insurance part in, into it, but, you know, every time that you've got more than 100 bales sitting in one area, it depends on your insurance. You know, if you have a, if something that drastically goes wrong and, and all of a sudden there's a fire go through, you know, if I've got hay in several different spots, you know, I've got a better chance of making sure that, that I've got everything covered or that I've got feed for this next winter. Well, and to add to that point too, if you've got hay that you, you rushed, you had to put up, that's a higher moisture content hay, let it sit for 30 days before you stack it because that, that's going to produce heat and it can produce enough heat to where it just internally combusts. And then if you've got a stack of 100, 200 bales, it's pretty easy for that to be gone. And then you're having to buy hay or do something different. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Those are good thoughts for sure. Let's, um, I got two other things I for sure want to cover. Um, and then I'll very dangerously let you guys uh, <laughs> tell me what else that, that we missed. I think the first one may lead to the second one. So uh, let's talk a little bit about baleage because that seems to be a, a trendy thing uh, in the last few years that, that a lot of folks have gotten balers that are capable of wet wrapping things. And, and so it seems like just has become more and more, more prevalent. Um, what are y'all's thoughts on that? Is it worth all the extra, you know, expense of the baler, the plastic to wrap it and storage and, and all that kind of stuff? Um, obviously, we, we're probably producing a more a higher quality bale at that point, but we're also trucking around a lot of water. So, um, so what are y'all's thoughts on that? Personally, I am a fan of it because you're going to have the highest quality hay right there. That's going to be very similar to putting up silage and or haylage. Um, and, and you're going to have a very high quality feed, uh, with wrapping that I'm a fan of it because very minimal spoilage. Um, so now you're, your difference between putting up haylage in a pit where you're going to lose a foot or two feet, uh, a spoilage on top, uh, depending on how well you pack versus very minimal spoilage wrapped up. Uh, however, you do run into a different uh, group of, I don't want to say problems, but a different set of challenges where uh, depending on how you're going to, are you going to wrap each individual bale? Are we going to, move them and put them in a big line and just do one line wrap. I'm a fan of putting them in line because less, less cost. Sure. Honestly. There's less wrap. There. There's less wrap. Yeah. It's, um, with that, we were talking earlier on this, if you're going to wrap each individual bale, now you're looking at having to have a grapple to pick them up because forks and spikes are out. Mm -hmm. You don't want to puncture that. You want to leave that airtight until you go to feed that. Um, if you're going to put them in a long line, uh, yeah, you just cut it open. You're going to pick it up with forks or a stabber, and then you can feed. So I'm a fan of it, but it's definitely one of those things. Run the numbers. Just make sure it works with the operation. Well, the other thing, too, is is your proximity of your hay field to where you're feeding. You know, are you hauling this hay and then wrapping it, or are you going to wrap it in the hay field and then haul it from there? Is that economical? Is that, you know, are you still going to maintain quality by doing that? Something else to think about, too. You know, a lot of guys – Hay fields are right next to where they're feeding. A lot of guys have to go 10, 12, 15 miles down the road just to hay. And maybe in that circumstance, it doesn't maybe make as much sense. It's really no different than a row crop farmer. Yeah. Would they love a 36, 48 row planter? Absolutely. Does it fit in their operation? It might not. Sure. So it really comes down to, is this something we can utilize cost effectively? Yeah. In an ideal world, I love it. 
less waste, more efficiency. That's the name of the game. Yeah, and and when you sit down and, and go through the numbers and make sure that it's going to fit your operation, you know, you're handling a smaller bale, but at, at probably at more weight. And so getting getting folks to understand that haven't went through that process that if we're, we're if we're doing hay leach or, or net wrapped hay, uh, we're we're going to have to have probably twice as many, if not more, bales than what we've been used to. So we're we're talking about a larger place to store, and and which are all good problems to have, but there's some things that you know need to go through the thought process to make sure everything's going to work for them, and make sure it's going to be. I, I I like it just because it improves the quality of the hay. Mm-hmm. where there's a bigger opportunity to make sure that we've got the right quality of hay yeah. coming back into into the is it worth operation. it with is it worth it with all species and, and types or you know i guess i would think that maybe something like alfalfa would make more sense you're going to go more into the legumes anything that okay. can ferment like that ferment those sugars uh good examples like what do you see on dairy farms uh if they're not putting up haylage in the pit or wrapping bales or they're putting them in those tubes and that's the kind of quality feed they're getting um but that's what you're looking at is legumes or uh, a heavy balanced diversity of them. It doesn't make sense to put uh, grass hay up wet and ferment them. Probably not. You might not get the return as you would with a legume. You bet. But on, even on grass hay, yeah, to go from a, an energy or a, or a relative feed value of low 80s to something in the 120s just by putting it up at the right moisture, uh, to me, that's worth a lot more, uh, even on all grass, sure. because I don't have to worry so much about it fermenting, uh, you know, if I've got it the right moisture. If I'm in that 45 to 55% range and get it sealed, I'm good. I'm, I'm a good fan of it just in the one aspect of the spoilage. Like, you are not wasting hardly any of it, versus I sit out there and I watch uh, my round bales go from green to brown to... Uh, I hope when I pick that up, all of it stays. Yeah. yeah. One comment I would probably add is, is in that circumstance, you're probably going to want a net wrap baler to be able to get a smoother side so you're not puncturing your, your plastic wrap, you know, with twine. Um, that's going to be the biggest deal is you want to make sure that you're not reintroducing oxygen to that bale or you're going to end up with like, Yeah, once you've wrapped it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Because then you get a poor product and you get to pay for it. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So I think, like I said, I think that leads us down the road of, you know, you mentioned some of the more specialty species and stuff, but <clears throat> let's um, talk just a little bit about, you know, kind of uh, cover crops or summer annuals and more times than not, uh, guys are, are wet wrapping those or using baleage um, for those species because they're so hard to, you know, to get uh, get to dry down, I think mostly. From a summer annual standpoint, hit me with some species that you guys like from a from a hay production standpoint. I think a lot of them are very good as far as if you're able to go out there and graze them. And we understand that, that that's certainly a good thing, um, especially with high dollar diesel fuel. But if we're just talking kind of hay, what, what do you guys like? I'm a big fan of grazing cover crops uh, because if you look at haying cover crops, uh, boy, you are just pulling a ton of nutrients out of the soil. And getting those cows to eat that, process it, and deliver it for you is is awful handy. Uh, 
looking at summer annuals, I'm a big fan of uh, sorghum sedan grass. I mean, you're going to make a lot of tonnage putting it up right. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. On the on now, if we're talking about hanging it and and putting it up as dry, then I I'd go back to you know depending on the operation, the sorghum sedans probably will work and do work, but then I'd go to more toward the millets because I can I can get them up in a lot shorter period of time and have a better chance of more tons, yeah. you know, and and, and of good quality feed because sometimes the sorghum sedans unfortunately get ahead of us. You know, instead right. of instead of getting done at chest high when they're supposed to, all of a sudden you're right. tractor high. Yeah. And with the millet, at least uh, when I see the first head, I know I'm already a day late, but I can get on it and get started. And then then I have the opportunity, just depending on how much nitrogen has been put on, whether or not I need to add more for the the second or third cutting, and and so. Now I'll lean more that way just because I know what I get when I when I have to put it up as dry hay. Now if it, it's going to go up as wet, you bet the sorghum sedans will probably work the best. Okay, no, that's that's a good tip there. And, and yeah, I like I said, I I certainly agree. I mean, we uh, on the you know cover crop side of things, you know, we put those things out there because they're nutrient scavengers a lot of times. Right. And then yeah, if you bail them up and run off with them, then you know mm -hmm. you've. You just scavenged and drove it away. Exactly. That's kind of a different rabbit hole as far as the grazing aspect of it. But I love the idea of grazing those those cover crops because them cows can get out and get out of a, a, a yard of eating hay and onto something fresh and green before the pasture is sure. ready. Absolutely. Yep. Um, yep. This is a little bit different, but um, as far as a summer annual, I like, I've had a good experience with this, establishing new hay fields using oats and, and bailing them as oat hay. So it kind of lines into that summer annual a little bit, uh, but had a lot of success as far as that, being able to pull that full first crop off of a, a new hay field and utilizing that as feed is wonderful. Yep, yep, agreed there. Okay, other things that we didn't touch on that you guys wanted to make sure we, we covered in a, in a hay based episode? One thing that comes to my mind is just weed management as well. You know, you get weeds in there and their dry down time is going to be different. Their quality obviously is not going to be there. So just kind of maintaining a, a proper weed control, um, you know, in most settings, if you're getting really, really high weed pressure, you're almost better off going out and taking care of that. Even if you have to sacrifice your lagoons and then coming back through and overseeding those just to get your higher quality hay and get rid of that weed pressure. Because once you have too much weed pressure, you're really, really sacrificing quality yep. and the ability to dry down, which again, sacrifices quality even more. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. I think through the livestock end of that, you got a lot of weeds. What are you going to do? You're going to bail that up. You're going to feed that to cows. What are cows going to do with it? They're going to deposit that through the pasture for you. Or if it's in a yard, you're going to scoop that up. Spread it on a hay field, and you're going to complete that cycle. Mm -hmm. I don't think I can overemphasize the the nutrient fertility side of it, knowing exactly where what's needed to grow that crop, uh, maintaining your species, meaning your weed control, and then after you've harvested it, is knowing where you're at as far as testing that hay and seeing exactly where you're at. Yeah, and I think um, one thing I'll throw in there too is is a lot of times we get very very caught up on um, 
especially in North Missouri. I I complimented North Missouri earlier, so I can pick on it now. But um, I'm from there, so it's okay. Uh, but uh, a lot of times we have we have the pasture, right? And we have the hay fields. Yeah. And uh, we never, like, how dare you move cows from one to the other or even think of something like that. But um, a lot of times I think in, in hay production where we can get some of those really bad weed inf infestations because we do the same thing to that. We've, we've done the same thing to that acre for the last 25 years. You know, like those weed species um, can easily adapt to a repeated annual process. They're like, well, you know, if I just wait until they wipe all this brome off of here, I've got all summer to grow and do whatever I want and make all kinds of seed. Right. I think that's probably one of the most dangerous phrases in agriculture or even in life it's because we've always done it that way yep that's exactly right and it's like okay so maybe maybe one once in a while we put up a hot wire around the hay field and we turn the cows out there and um you know and and we shake things up a little bit yep. keep stuff on their toes so absolutely but all right guys thank you very much for coming in here today and and helping record this i think this was awesome so certainly um Appreciate, appreciate your all's time and uh, preparedness and, and kind of thinking about and organizing your thoughts for, for hay production. Anything else you want to throw in there before we turn the mic off? Just add that uh, we're having that forage tour down in Mount Vernon on the 13th of July. July 13th. Yep. Yes. Uh, we got to go to that last year. Excellent. Uh, the speakers and looking at a wide variety of uh, hay and grazing programs. Uh, different species to be able to just walk through it and see what they've done. I would encourage anybody that's interested to attend that. It was definitely valuable. Yep. Yep. No, there's some good, uh, there's some good forage stuff going on this summer kind of around the state. I've seen some other things too. So um, yeah, if you got some interest in that, holler at um, Brandon or whoever your local MFA contact is and um, we can get checked up with those too. So awesome. Thanks again, guys. Yep. Thanks, everybody, Thank for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Made for Agriculture. Email comments and questions to podcast at mfa-inc.com.